0: Plugged into all kind of things up here. Okay, all right. Welcome, okay, welcome. I I feel like I'm gonna be going like this. It's like you guys chose like two corners, and then you got the ragtag group back in the corner that's always there. So that's good. That's good. So welcome and glad you're here. Uh, today we're gonna start a new series, and it's the next few weeks we're gonna be looking at this question, the question of what now? Um, I remember early on in youth ministry, I would, uh, I would teach a lesson on a Wednesday night and uh, after we got married, I'd get home and Megan and I would finally usually sit down to eat dinner together uh, r- after youth group uh, or we'd have some kind of like follow-up snack to the light meal that we wolfed down really quick before we headed over to youth group. Um, and so... Uh, I remember those nights, I would say, so basically I would be like, so how'd I do? You know, that was awesome, right? And, uh, and a lot of times my wife would say something as a follow-up to me of like, uh, I, thought it, I thought it was great, but you didn't like, so what? Like, so what? You gave him information, you gave me information, but like, what now? Like, what, what am I supposed to do with it? And I realized like over time, the the propensity of the pulpit, I guess I'll just speak for myself, is to broadcast out information and then leave the dot connecting up to you. So you take all this information and then you get your feet held to the fire if there's not like drastic changes in your life because you didn't make conclusions or you didn't live up to expectations that nobody voiced them to you. And churches just, we do this to each other all the time, don't we? We hold each other to unrealized and unspoken expectations a lot. Uh, we ask ourselves the wrong questions, or we, we nod our heads like we understand everything, and we don't create space to wrestle with the uh, what now. So we just spent several months looking at the nature of Jesus from all these different perspectives So the the math, I think, says that if Jesus is bigger to us, I think that equates to behavioral adjustments and it, it, it equates to shifts in our priorities. I think that's absolute math, by the way. I think that math is absolute. If Jesus is bigger then behavioral adjustments and shifts in our priorities happen. And it might not even be consciously happening in your life. You might just be able to look back on the patterns of your day-to-day now compared to when you met, then before you met Jesus. And you're like, I do things so differently now. I prioritize things so differently now. And the only thing that really changed was you met Jesus. So what now? What does this look like? Why, why do we do certain things in church? Why, why are there certain things that as a church we do that maybe in other pockets of society you wouldn't find yourself doing? You, you, don't, you don't meet with your employer and he says, hey, you got a promotion at work, so now what we're going to do is gather everybody around and they're going to watch as I dip your head underwater three times in the name of our employer. Hey, to make sure they're all unified in this endeavor of building this house, us contractors are going to get together and we're going to watch each other's feet first. There are pockets of society that we spend the majority of our time in that we don't do the things that we do here. I was at Target when they opened uh, one morning. You know, it was one of those weirdos in the parking lot before they opened the door. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been that person, but it's kind of embarrassing when you're like you're there and you're out of your car. and You walk up to the door and it's locked and you're like, oh, man, I need to really get a life. But then you realize there are people lined up before you. And I'm like, is there some kind of big sale I wasn't aware of this morning? Why are you all lined up here? I think they're all in the same boat as me. But, you know, this like so I walk in. And as I walk down this one aisle, they have rallied some of the employees together. And the manager comes over and he's like way over exuberant for eight o'clock in the morning. And he's like, hey, Target, this is going to be a great day. Football season started. He's like super excited. And I'm like, I don't want to work for you. Like you're way too, way too here early in the morning. And I don't know if anybody's that excited to be at Target right now. Um, so, yeah, I guess some employers do some of these rallying points and these, these different things. But even those kind of things I walk into and I'm thinking, like, it's kind of weird, right? Now, if you worked there and that was your daily routine, you just knew that's what happened, and that's how the manager handled his business, it just becomes normal to you over time. It doesn't feel weird. But you stop asking why you do it, right? So there are certain things that we do as a church As a church, no matter what church you step into, that that are ritualistic in nature or could become ritualistic in nature. And we don't stop often to ask ourselves why. So I believe that healthy churches do certain things that Scripture says healthy churches should do. And that answers the what now question. But it also hopefully will answer the why. Why do we even do this? Does that make sense? So why do we gather on a regular basis? Why do we baptize people? Why do we celebrate communion? Why do we pray? Well, we're going to look at the lifestyle of the early church, and we're we'll use that as a lens to view our own patterns through. We're going to look at the patterns of the early church, and then we're going to weigh our patterns against it. And we're going to see what health looked like over here for the early church, and we're going to look at what we do as a church, and we're going to put those things together, and we're going to see what matches up. Do our priorities and lifestyle choices match up with what the Word tells us a healthy church looks like? And I, I think we should look at that together. I think that'll be good for us to do some inventory, if you will, And today we're going to start by looking at the church at its, in in my opinion, healthiest. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 42 through 47. Now, I know that I talk about this passage often. I'm not saying that from an apologetic standpoint. I just know that my heart, it is good for me to gaze back at this passage often, especially in uh, the sense that what does it look like to lead a church or to be a part of the church? It's good to reorient ourselves around this moment. Now, let's look at what's happening before. We're going to look at verses 42 through 47. But uh, real quick, what's happening here is that at the end of the Gospels, what we see in the New Testament is the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. At the end of each one of those, we have the story of Jesus ascending back. He has risen from the grave. He has conquered death. And he has promised that the helper will be coming. Now, he was the rescuer. He was the promised redeemer and rescuer. Now, he is is fully alive. He has conquered the grave. And he meets with these people, these followers of the way. They They were coined the followers of the way by the religious elitists of the day that tried to kill Jesus. Well, they did kill Jesus. They tried to kill His message too, and that didn't really work out for them. So now their target is the followers of the way. And Jesus spends some time on earth, and He meets with these people, and He prays with them, and He ascends back up to the Father. And in the beginning of the book of Acts, we hear Jesus say, the, the author Luke tells us this, He tells us that Jesus says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the world. In the end of Matthew, he says, I will be with you until the very end of the age. He's equipping the disciples at the end of the gospels, telling them that the helper that's coming will be better for you than me staying with you. It's better for you if I leave, because if I leave, You get the Holy Spirit. And he essentially is telling the followers, I know you don't completely know what that means yet, but I promise you, when you get it, you'll you'll agree with me that it's better for you if I leave. Because I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when it's ready, and my Father says it's ready, I'm going to come get you, and you will be with me for eternity. So go and give this message to others so that when I come back, there's more of you to come. You are entrusted with this. You are equipped with this. Now go and give the message away. That's the message. But until you receive the Helper, meet and pray. Now they, just so you know, these same followers have been told that same thing twice before. And both times they just casually fell asleep. Wait and pray. And they just casually fell asleep. But this time they didn't. This time they stayed in an upper room and they waited. And one day, their waiting translates into something that they couldn't have ever imagined or mapped out. There wasn't anybody, I am sure of it. There wasn't anybody that could have said, hey, listen, when this helper comes, I bet we all start speaking different languages and flames come out of our heads. But that's exactly what happened. So they, they, receive the Holy Spirit, a great wind comes through the room. That wind brings with it the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There are what appears to be flames sticking out of their heads or hovering over the tops of their heads. It's crazy and hard to explain and hard for our human minds to conceptualize without being there. And they all start speaking the dialects and languages of their ancestors, which they never knew before. Not only that, but as everyone is speaking these different languages, everyone's hearing the different languages and they're all understanding each other at the same time. It's a crazy, crazy moment in the life of the church because when the Holy Spirit indwells for the first time, there's this outpouring that is hard for us to wrap our heads around. And we're human beings. We always want to have an explanation for something. We always want to know why. That's the first question a kid learns how to ask, right? And there's a never-ending series of that coming out. Well, why? 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 I don't know. You eventually get to the point as a parent, you're just like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to your question. I don't know. So when we look at this story, just look at it. We're coming at it as children. And the Holy Spirit has engulfed the, His people. And we're going to always have why questions or how questions. And there are some things we're just not meant to know the complete answers to yet as far as the practical how and why were they actual flames? What languages did they speak? How did they understand each other? There are all kinds of questions that could be asked. But what I can say is there's this massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. And I'm not going to focus a whole lot of our time on those things. What I want to look at is what is the result of an indwelled with the Holy Spirit church? Because this is the birth of something new. These aren't just followers of the way. This is what's called ecclesia, a gathered Church people gathered together under the the love of Jesus, devoted to the love of Jesus and indwelled with the Holy Spirit. It's never happened before in human history until what we're going to read this morning. And then we're going to see what flows out of that. So they get the Holy Spirit. They're out on the streets. People are like, whoa, these people are super drunk. They're just speaking gibberish because they didn't understand them. They didn't understand these dialects and languages being spoken. So the, the first human logic explanation that could, they could come to was they're obviously drunk. Right? Peter stands up and he says, no, 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 no. You misunderstand what's happening here. They're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. What kind of people do you think we are? No, these people are filled with the Holy Spirit. This same Jesus, who you crucified, he really lets them have it, and he preaches the sermon of his life. And at the end of it, thousands of people commit themselves to the love of Jesus. And that's the birth of the church. It goes from this small gathering in an upper room filled with the Holy Spirit to within minutes, thousands of people following Jesus gathered in one spot. And at the end of that, whenever we get those numbers reported to us, by Luke, who is very thorough, that's when we get to what we're going to read today. So know that what this is talking about is literally thousands of people, not just 20 or 30 people hanging out in someone's living room. You're talking thousands of people. So that's where we pick up. And indwelled with the Holy Spirit gathering of thousands of people that love Jesus and are devoted to this. This is what it says. And starting in verse 42 through 47, it says in Acts 2, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. We want to answer two questions. The first question is this. What was the early church devoted to? This is a very healthy church. This is a very healthy gathering of people called the church. What were they devoted to? What were their rhythms? And then out of that, we want to answer a question for us today. Why do we gather So to start, we need to answer a few questions. For ourselves, we need to look at the word devoted that is used here. It's the third word in here. It says, and they, meaning the followers of Jesus, the church. It says, and they devoted themselves. Have you ever thought through what you are devoted to? Like if you were to write that list down, what are the things you personally are devoted to. I've heard it said that if you want to know what you're devoted to, all you need to do is look at your calendar and look at your expenses. Because where we give our time and our money usually points to what we're devoted to. The Greek word for devoted here is toreo, and it means to be earnest towards. The Greek language is way more complex than the English language. We take this big concept and we try to make it into a word, devoted. But what they used had so much meaning behind it because devoted means to be earnest towards, to persevere, to be constantly diligent, to adhere closely to, to attend continually, to wait on. In Vine's Expository Dictionary, it tells us that it it connotates a perseverance or endurance to be continually steadfast with a person or thing. So to be devoted was to be continually steadfast with a person or thing. And steadfast, just to refresh all of our minds, means resolutely unwavering. Resolutely unwavering, steadfast, continually steadfast with a person or a thing. That is the definition of devoted. So let's reread that passage, just the first part. Just that first verse, verse 42, let's reread that passage in the right context, because it would say something along the lines of, and they had a resolutely unwavering commitment to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So we ask ourselves, what was the early church devoted to? Well, they had a resolutely unwavering commitment to the teaching of God's word, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is communion, and to prayer. So we need to make sure we look at what they were resolutely, unwaveringly committed to. We see those things, right? We see that they were resolutely, unwaveringly committed to being together, to sitting under the authority of God's word, to celebrating the Lord's Supper and and what entailed with that, to remember Jesus' body and blood. And they were devoted to prayer. And then what comes out of that? What pours out of that? What pours out of a church that is devoted to those things? Because that's really what we want to know, right? Right? I don't want to know just why, I want to know the result. If you're going to ask me to commit to something, I want to know what it's going to lead to. See, I think of this in sports today. There are, there, are, there are kind of two kinds of athletes in our world today, in American sports, I'll say. Two kinds of athletes. They both fall under the category that they want to win a championship, but one's willing to play for the Lions and one's not. The one that's willing to play for the Lions just wants a paycheck because they know it's not, they're not going to win. I'll, I'll pick on myself a little bit instead of Detroit fans. The one who wants to play for the Pirates, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the proverbial 30-year-long whipping post of the Major League Baseball. The, the players that play for the Pirates, they want a big contract so that they can get traded to another team that will actually win. They want the result. And then you have the players that that you'll hear about, they took less money to go with a winning team, right? Because they want to win a championship. So I'll take less money to be with a winning team. Why? Because the formula tells me that if I commit myself to this organization, it will lead to these results. The other person says, I don't care what the results are because I'm going to have enough money to do whatever I want with anyway. It's me, 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 right? But the other player says, no, I want to be a part of this organization because the path forward tells me that there's going to be success here. There's going to be something at the end that I desire. I desire the championship ring. Therefore, this team is the best place for me to be, whether they pay me big money that this place was going to pay pay me or not. Does that make sense? So what's happening here is we're looking at something. We're looking at the church, and we're seeing what were they devoted to. Yes, it's an important question because it hopefully dictates what we're devoted to as a church. But we're also going to want to know what the results are. We're all results-oriented people, whether we want to say that or not. We all are. So let's look at the results. Let's look at the results of a church that has a resolutely unwavering commitment to the authority of God's Word, being together in fellowship, celebrating the communion and the breaking of bread, and to praying. It says that out of those things, out of the resolutely unwavering commitment to those things, awe came upon everyone, and many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. That's important for us to look at. I'm going to take a quick aside. When we look at spiritual giftedness and we look at the emotional chargedness of the church in this, in this day and age, there are people that want to say that if, if a church is healthy, these kind of signs and wonders are coming out of the church all the time. It's important to contextually look at. It's for another sermon for another day. But it's, it's important for us to contextually realize that the awe and wonder was coming upon everybody, but the signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And apostles aren't alive right now. Apostles, by definition, were people who firsthand witnessed the work of Jesus. You take Judas out of that equation because he ended his own life. You add Paul into it. If you count Matthias, who they cast lots to bring into the disciple, into that group, you have 13 people. That's it. Now, I'm not saying that later on these things weren't done and said, and like I said, it's a sermon for another day, but it's important for us to say that that's not an essential ingredient for a healthy church in our day and age because there's not any any apostles sitting here with us to see signs and wonders done through. Like I said, that's a question that needs answered for another sermon, and it will, but that's not the one for today. Awe and wonder was coming upon all of them, everyone. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, that's crazy. That's crazy. The the people of God were devoted to these things, and a byproduct of that wasn't just this awe and wonder that came upon them. It was that they willingly submitted to one another that they were like-minded in the things that mattered. What this is saying is that the people of God, at their healthiest moment, were keeping the main thing, the main thing. They were gathered because the love of Jesus had compelled them to gather. And they were working towards that end, together. So things that could have become big things just stayed on the we're going to let these things sit over here we like different foods we like different sports teams we dress differently whatever those differences are those are not things main things over here we're not going to make secondary things first tier things verse 45 they were selling their possessions and belongings they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need meaning there was not one person in their midst that was in need without it being addressed by them. They didn't give them a phone number to call a hotline to provide them with a hot meal. They took care of it themselves. They pulled their resources together. There's a story in Acts that tells us that uh, Barnabas owned this piece of land. He actually went home, looked over at what he had and said, I don't need this. This is not essential to my existence. And I'm holding on to this at the expense of other people who do need something. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to sell this piece of land because I don't need it. I'm not using it for anything. And then he takes that money, brings it in, hands it to the apostles and says, give this to the people that need it. And then they distributed it out evenly to those who needed it. There was just this like crazy next level generosity. And then day by day, attending the temple together, meaning that they were sitting under the teaching together. They were breaking bread in their homes. They were practicing hospitality. They were were willingly saying, hey, uh, we're, we're, we're eating at Frank's house today, okay? And Frank would be like, oh, yeah, that's cool. We'll order pizzas or whatever. But yeah, come on over. There was just this open door generosity and hospitality that at a moment's notice they were just breaking bread in one another's homes. Thousands of people, not in one home, I don't think, but gathering together in like-minded people's homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts. There was this exuberance around these tables. And they praised God. The next part in verse 47 is so essential for us to rest with. And if you've been here for more than two Sundays, you've probably heard me say this already. But it says, praising God and having favor with all the people. Having favor with all the people. When the church doesn't keep the main thing, the main thing, we do not gain the favor of all the people. We don't. We look foolish. We become irrelevant. We become unnecessary in the society's eyes. Therefore, if you're devoted to the church in today's day and age, you're the weirdo. You're the outsider. Out of all the things you could devote your time to, you chose to sit and listen to some guy just talk to you for 40 minutes. You chose to give up your Friday night to go to a community group. You chose to give up your Saturday to just... Hang out and eat barbecued food with some guys. You chose to give up your Thursday night to go and work through what God's teaching you and like what, what you're trying to flush out of your own heart with other people. You do that every week. You chose to give up your whole Sunday at the Johnson's house or community group. Why? And over time, I believe that if the church is really devoted to Jesus, if we're really devoted to these things, it does gain favor with all the people. And then what happens is very important. The math is very, very important because we skip the other stuff and we want the end. Because the last part of this says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The behavior of the church, the devotion of the people of God became such a sweet aroma to the communities they were in that by God's infinite grace and mercy, he was doing the work on behalf of the church. It says the Lord added to their number. There's no room for the people of God to brag about anything here other than their weakness so that they can point more people to Jesus. And that's exactly what they're doing. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at each one of these in detail. But today we want to look at this like gathering aspect, this fellowship, that they sat under the apostles' teaching and they gathered together. I find it fascinating that the followers of Jesus, what did they instinctively do when they were indwelled with the Holy Spirit? What did they just instinctively start doing? They started gathering together. When I went to, uh, my son started ninth grade this year, my oldest. And whenever I went to orientation, they put a slide up on the screen of all the clubs that are available to the high schoolers. And it's crazy. Like, I think when I went to high school, there were like eight clubs. Maybe zero of them I was interested in. Um, But there were clubs for everything at the school, and I think that's great. Basically, they just find a teacher that's willing to sponsor something that a couple of them are interested in, and then they they can have a club. They're affinity groups, right? Like-minded people flock together. I bet you $100, if someone walked into church this morning with an Atlanta, Georgia shirt on, Ty would be talking to them. Why? Because we're, we're drawn to people of like-mindedness. If someone walked in with a Jets jersey on, we could finally have Andrew have a friend. <laughs> <laughs> we, we Don't we do that, though? We instinctively gather together with like-minded people. We find affinity groups everywhere. As soon as someone says something that we're interested in, we have a connection point with that person, and then we can talk to them about that stuff. That's exactly what the people of God did instinctively. They're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and they instinctively find common ground in their love of Jesus, and they just keep gathering together. They desired to spend time with one another with purpose and intentionality. Their time together was all about becoming more equipped. It was all about removing stumbling blocks to others in the way of Jesus. If they had strategy sessions, which I'm sure at some level they did, If they had strategy sessions, though, those things probably were all gathered around how can we remove these religious stumbling blocks to people really seeing who Jesus really is. The the Jesus that we know, the Jesus that has changed our lives, how can we let people see Him so freely and so openly and so completely that they too receive His redeeming grace and they too get to be indwelled with this Holy Spirit and they too get together and realize this joy and they too are part of these meals that we're having and we get to celebrate baptism with them and we get to have communion with them. how do we do that? Their main question wasn't how do we get more people to come sit in our building? No, their main question was how do we remove any stumbling block in the way of people seeing the Jesus that has captivated us. And when a gathered church asks that question as the predominant question, you better believe that stumbling blocks will be removed, and I believe that God will add to their number day by day, those who are being saved. we got to start asking ourselves the right questions, though. They gathered with the purpose of sitting under the teaching of God's Word. If you've been around me for any amount of time, you will know that I rarely have a lack of something to say. It's a blessing and a huge curse at the same time. In my best moments, I can say something of value. In my worst moments, I can completely domineer a conversation and be the world's worst listener. But whenever I have something to say up here, if it's coming from here, somewhere in Adam Johnson, I might be able to make you laugh, I might be able to hold your attention, but it has zero substance if it's not coming from this. I don't have anything to say of substance, of value, if it's not this. If I'm not spending time in the Word, I really don't have anything to tell you. So the people gathered because they fully expected the apostles to be meeting and communing with the Lord to the point where when they spoke it was going to help them remove stumbling blocks in their own hearts and in the hearts of those they got to do life with outside of that moment. And it says day by day attending the temples. That does not mean daily. That just means any chance they were they could they gathered. These people had lives they had jobs, they had families, they had responsibilities apart from this. I think our picture is that they just gave up on everything that they did and all they did was just build a commune together and all they did was sing together and share food together and they lived life together every day, every hour, every minute. That's, that's not what we see happening here. What we see is people that reoriented what their lives were devoted to and there was fuel that they, that they could use to their advantage to make that a reality. Things like their jobs and their homes, which needed paid for. They had taxes that they had to pay. a matter of fact, whenever Jesus was asked, what should we do whenever Caesar wants us to pay taxes? Jesus' answer was, pay your taxes. Simple answer. So these people had to make money, they had to have jobs, they had to have lives apart from this, but this is what they were devoted to. Anything they were doing outside of this was fuel to help them stay on track with what they were devoted to. They weren't devoted to making more money. They weren't devoted to their investment portfolios. They weren't devoted to their vacation calendars and they weren't devoted to their garages. They weren't devoted to their hobbies or their interests. All of those things existed in their own way, how things existed back then. It didn't mean they didn't do them. It means they weren't devoted to them. So when we ask ourselves, what am I devoted to? We have to ask it through that lens. Am I devoted to Jesus in His way supremely? It seems as though that's what's happening to the early church. They gathered with the purpose of sitting under the teaching of God's word. They knew there seemed to be this collective understanding that they knew they couldn't make it one more minute staying devoted to what they were devoted to without the word being the thing that guided it. Hebrews 10 has this moment of what now, just like we're doing. It's a book, a letter written with the premise of Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than the law. He's better than it all. There's not anything you're going to have available to you in this life, in this world, that will ever amount to one aota better than Jesus. A life full of Jesus leads to action. But what comes out of our lives is evidence of what we took into our lives. Remember the old adage? Maybe your grandma said it to you too garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. What we put in eventually makes its way out. So, what is the evidence of a life devoted? So the whole letter to Hebrews, it, to, the, to the Hebrew people, is all about Jesus being better than all of those things. So after all of this defense and apologetic work has been, has been done, Hebrews 10 gets to this, so what moment. This, now what? And it says this in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. It says, therefore, brothers... Since we have now therefore meaning all the defense of why Jesus is better, all of it. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, It's talking about how Jesus is better. And when the author gets into that, what now, one of the things that gets addressed is don't neglect meeting together. When the so what question, before it even gets asked by the reader, it's like the author anticipates that it's coming. What now? You've given me a lot of instruction, a lot of answers to questions, some of which I didn't even think to ask. Now what? Before the the reader even gets to ask that, the writer addresses certain aspects of what now. And one of those things that he says is, don't neglect the meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. This world is all about not prioritizing this gathering of the people of God. But if we're devoted to Jesus... In the way of Jesus, we prioritize it, not in the form of legalism. Legalism says you have to do something to gain something or to keep something. You see the difference? Legalism says that if you want to please God, you have to attend church. And if you want to continue to please God, you have to keep attending church. And if you miss church for any reason... You went down a few notches in God's eyes. He's disappointed in you. It'll take, it'll take like a month worth of Sundays to get it back. And You better dress nice too. That's what legalism says. But no, like what drives us isn't that legalism because we already know God loves us. We know that there's nothing we can do to make Him love us less. There's nothing we can do to make Him love us more. He loves us just as He loves His own Son. When you were brought into a right relationship with Jesus through the blood of Jesus, you were brought into a right relationship with God. If you are walking that pathway now, church, you are walking in fellowship with God. You are viewed by God as His Son, clothed in the robes of Jesus, the robes of righteousness. You've been made right before a holy God. So you do not have to prove yourself to Him. You couldn't if you tried. You could spend a lifetime trying to please God. And at the end of the day, here, away from me, I never knew you. And that's heartbreaking to me. So it's not driven by legalism. It's driven by the reality that we love God, that we are indwelled with His Spirit, that we've been redeemed by His grace, and that we need one another. We need one another. We need this accountability. We need to learn from one another. We need to hear questions asked of us. We need to gather together. I bet every one of us could share a story about a crappy Sunday morning. Everything was going terribly. and You almost said you weren't coming. You almost didn't do it. Something about being with the people of God changed that 180 degrees. It's never the same thing. It's never everybody saying, oh, it was because of that song we sang. No, it's, it's all kinds of stuff. It's I saw that person. As soon as I got there, they opened the door for me, and it was like, okay, this is the right place for me to spend my time this morning. It was a song we sang. It was a scripture we read. It was something that was said during a prayer. Or during the message, it was a hug from someone that just must have known when needed one. And the list goes on and on and on. We need one another. For so many reasons, I don't have time to rattle them all off for you today. The church, when, when, devo- when, when indwelled with the Spirit of the living God, instinctively said, let's do this together. That's what the Spirit of the living God led them to. So let's let him lead us to it too. What are we devoted to? So here are the takeaways. I only have two of them for you today. One is this Consider what you are devoted to. Consider what you are devoted to. What is the driving force behind your day to day decisions and priorities? Are these driven by an eternal perspective? or just a got-to-get-through-the-day perspective? Now, church, these aren't questions that have easy answers, but when you strip everything down to a skeleton, what remains are motives. And motives move us forward. There is something in the bedrock of your existence that is motivating you to move forward. If we can dig into that, we'll be able to answer the question of what we're devoted to. Now, The answer will most likely feel a little convicting if you're anything like me. You see, we can never reach the depths of God's love for us. So therefore, I don't know if I'm capable of being 100% driven by it all the time. But whenever I stop myself and I reorient, asking myself these questions, what am I devoted to right now in this moment? What am I devoted to? Not what is holistically defines my life is what I've been devoted to. No. What am I devoted to right now? What's the thing behind the thing? I'm about to make this decision. There's something driving it. What is it? What's the thing behind the thing? What's the real motivator here? Once I wrestle with that, I will be able to ask myself, is the love of Jesus the real motivator for me? Consider what you're devoted to. And the second takeaway, do not neglect the meeting together as is the habit of some. Do not neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of some. Being together is vital. It's vital. Again, the motives matter. (laughs) Why we gather matters. What are we devoted to? Well, we want to be devoted to the fellowship. Because we want to be devoted to building one another up and loving good deeds. And, And in Hebrews 10, it tells us to stir one another up. The stirring is disruptive, by the way. If you have pond water that has sat in a jar, it looks pretty nice on top and pretty gross on the bottom. And when you stir it, it all looks brown. It's disruptive. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says the church should be doing to one another. Stirring one another up. Because when we're devoted to something that's not Jesus, when we step into this space, we should have people in our lives that recognize that and help us wrestle with it. They disrupt us. They stir us up. I would guess... That some of the people over the past five years, if you've been committed to this church, that have upset you the most are probably sitting in this room. Not so much hurt you or wounded you. I mean just like annoyed you or upset you. Most likely is because they stirred you up. Or you stirred them up. But don't neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of some. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Some people have said they don't need this. Now, listen, that was true thousands of years ago when this was written. It's even more true now. I don't need to wake up and go to church. I'll watch it online on Monday. I'll sleep in. I don't need to go to community group. I don't need to go to Celebrate Recovery. I don't need to go to Adorn or Armor. And listen, no, you don't. You don't have to. No one's going to call you and twist your arm and tell you you have to be at any of those things. Because we can all make excuses as to why we can't do something. But don't neglect the meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, because we can convince ourselves we don't need it. We will find our desire to gather increase as our love and affection of Jesus increases. Something is always getting bigger in your life. It's either Jesus or something else. And I can promise you, if it's Jesus, you will want to be around more people like Jesus. And you will stop wanting to hide by yourself or find people that aren't like Jesus to to hang out with. You will find yourself, when you spend time with people who aren't devoted to Jesus, trying to figure out how you can remove obstacles to them seeing Jesus more clearly. And to answer that question properly, you need to go to experts, fellow experts in the field. And they are people who are captivated with the love of Jesus as well. Not just your pastor, the people sitting to your left and your right, right now. We are all, if we've been captivated with the love of Jesus, we are experts in the field of us. Wrestling with Jesus, wrestling with the reality of sin, desire for holiness. So we get to do that together, we stand a much better chance of God allowing there to be approval from the community of this group of people called the church and then adding to our number daily, those who are being saved. Not those who are attending on a regular basis, those who are being saved. Saved from what? Saved from an eternity without God. That door is still open. We want people to walk through it. So consider what you're devoted to. And do not neglect the meeting together is the habit of some. Our collective prayer as the body of Christ should be hands held high in the sky saying, God, build your kingdom here and let us be a part of it. Use us to build your kingdom right here, right now. That should be the prayer of the church. What are we as a church devoted to? Why do we do this? Why do we gather? Well, because it's, it's, it's a must. And if I could be crass about it, I would just say this. If it worked for the early church at the level it worked for them, we would be foolish to not try it. I've often said that Journey Church is a hypothesis. We throw stuff to the wall a lot. Some of it sticks and some of it doesn't. We want to be obedient to God. but One of the things that we have, we have said, this, we're going to do this because it looks like in Scripture this works, was gathering together on a regular basis. And when we gather, opening the Word together. So far, that's not been something we feel needs to change. So far, everything we see in Scripture leads to the conclusion that that's pretty good math. When the people of God gather and centered around the teachings of his word, we become better. So far, scientific method has proved that that hypothesis is true. So we're not going to stop now. Let's not be a church that gathers when we feel like it. Let's be a church that gathers together because we know our souls need one another. And let's, let's let God use us to build his kingdom right here, right now. God, may you build your kingdom. May we be people devoted to that end. Devoted to your word. Devoted to uh, prayer. Devoted to celebrating the communion and devoted to baptizing one another and seeing your church grow and and devoted to equipping with the truth and living it out, to gathering together, true, lasting fellowship. Pictures, small little glimpses that you give us of eternity with you. When we gather together for a meal or we gather together to pray, we gather together in your word, You give us these little tiny glimpses of eternity with you. So may you bolster our hearts with joy and courage and encouragement today as you're gathered, church. And we look forward to what you're going to do through us, in us, in our hearts as we wrestle with the reality of what we're devoted to. Father, build your kingdom here, we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?